He is risen. And with that, we turn in our Bibles this morning to a powerful story account that has been so loved throughout the generations and centuries as it relates to appearances of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's John chapter 21 and verse 1 through 14. What you're going to find in these verses as we explore them together is not one, not two, But three times, you and I are going to find some reference to the word reveal or revelation that are found here because what we are exploring in many ways in this passage is how the resurrection is being revealed in the common everyday experience of living life. And so if you're facing challenges in your own personal life, been coming and coming and you are grasping but with what is the understanding and the significance of the Easter season in particular and the resurrection. We're going to look at this together in verse 1 through 14 because the Apostle John pens these words for you and for me that after this Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan, Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. And yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple, whom Jesus loved therefore, said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work. And threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but a hundred yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled in the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. 
And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. And Father, in these minutes, we've come to worship you. We come with the intense and extensive issues of life. This can be a mountaintop experience of worship, and yet at the same time, much of life is lived in the valley. There might be someone here who in prior times had someone sitting next to them and they're no longer with them. There might be someone, Father, who's come out of spiritual curiosity about things that matter most, looking for in-depth answers to life's extensive and intensive questions. There's that one Father that comes simply hungry for Jesus. We come from a wide range of backgrounds, perhaps a wide range of religions or denominations. Some come as a secularist unbeliever. Others might come as religious unbelievers. There are those, Father, that have put faith and trust in Jesus in their childhood and others that have put faith and trust in their adulthood. And so in all these services this morning with this wide range of experience that we bring into this building, we bring it to the one who's experienced the ultimate death and resurrection, dying for our sins, and on that third day being raised from the dead. Warm these hearts engage these minds, shape these wills. Again, Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Been a tradition through the years on Easter that I pick up a a newspaper to find out what Johnny Hart had penned in his latest comic strip. It was an annual thing, you could count on it, that would have something to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And my files are full and bulging with all his comic strips through the years. He died in 2007, and of all places, Nineveh, New York. He died where he would probably hope to die, at his drawing board, as he was penning another insightful comic for people to think through. One of my favorites was penned by his, by his counterpart, Wiley, peg-legged Wiley, and it goes something like this. Picture yourself tied to a tree, condemned of the sins of eternity, Then picture a spear parting the air, seeking your heart and your despair. When suddenly a knight in armor of white 
stands in the gap betwixt you and its flight. And shedding his armor of God for you, bears the lance that runs him through. His heart has been pierced that yours may beat, and the blood of his corpse washes your feet. Picture yourself in raiment white, cleansed by the blood of the lifeless night, never to mourn the prince who is downed, for he is not lost. It is you who are found. For both B.C. and A.D. types of people. And now what you find here in this refreshing and compelling story is the third appearance of the risen Savior who is out to seek and to find his disciples. And he's going to go where you would expect them to be, out on the waters fishing, because by nature that was their trade. God has a way of breaking into your normal. He has a way of breaking into your routines and challenging you in your everyday common experiences of life to ask yourself the tough question and just what does the resurrection of Jesus Christ have to do with this and me anyways? What I want to do is to explore that question with you in these 14 verses and to draw three significant factors that pertain to the way in which this resurrection is revealed to Christ's followers. Let's dig in. The first is found in verses 1 down through verse 5, and we're going to pen it like this. The first, through Jesus Christ's resurrection. I want you to note with me, number one, the limitations God reveals about us, about you, about me. You and I are told in verse 1 that it is after this, and right away you raise your hand and say, Gary, After what? What is this? Well, what Jesus has done, not once, but twice prior, is to reveal himself in his full resurrected state to get people to start thinking about the tough questions of life. But in each of those two prior revelations of resurrection, he was able to penetrate closed doors to be able to speak resurrection truth to his weakened followers. The first was found in this 20th chapter, verse 19, where on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, ironically, the tomb is open, yet the doors are locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And in that 20th verse of the previous chapter, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw, and you mock this, the Lord. The second, likewise, we find them behind closed doors 
and the doors were locked, but the tomb is open. And in that 24th verse, Thomas, who was not present to that prior revelation of resurrection, uh, is there, and Jesus came, and the other disciples told him, we've seen, mark this, the Lord. But now he lays down some conditions. Beware of laying conditions on your Lord. He said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails, place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Absolutist. Laying down conditions in an absolute sense. You ever bump into somebody like that work? They're looking for evidence. But the three days later Savior appears on the scene. He's not hindered by stones in front of tombs, and he's not hindered by doors locked on the inside, you see. Eight days later, his disciples are inside again, you're told in that 20th chapter. Now, they're still scared. Human emotions are what they are, and resurrection power addresses even the fears of life itself. And Thomas, this time, is there with them. He's had seven days, eight days to process the information that his credible friends have pertaining to Jesus appearing on the scene. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then as if he was listening in on that private conversation behind closed doors, he turns and he says to Thomas, put your finger here. He's calling him out. God recalled you out. Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered, my Lord, my God. There's the answer to your question after this. What was before this for John to say after this? Two resurrection revelations that happened behind closed doors, locked doors, ironically, because of an open tomb that speaks of evidence at hand. God has a way of providing evidence through empty tombs and despite locked doors. And now Jesus reveals himself to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. And now in verse 2, he calls out Simon Peter, And Simon Peter was the one who's got some unresolved business with Jesus. Not once, not twice, but three times he had denied Jesus while standing at a charcoal fire in a courtyard. Now, not once, not twice, but three times now, Jesus reveals himself to his disciples. There is a sense of connectedness as this story begins to unfold for you. Here is... 
Here is the denier, Simon Peter. And then there is Thomas, the doubter. And then thirdly, here is Nathaniel, who is the one who had a disregard so much so for Jesus that in that opening chapter of John's Gospel, John records Nathaniel as posing this question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. But now this time, here's Jesus to come and tell and to come and show. And so now notice, and this is not ironic, the three persons that are named in this verse. There is Peter, Simon Peter, the denier. There is Thomas, Didymus, the doubter. There's Nathaniel, the one who disregards. And here are the others who no longer are named here in these verses, the sons of Zebedee, two others of his disciples were together. And here comes Simon Peter, of course, Simon Peter. And Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. As if he's had enough, he can't sit any longer. Now, I've been a pastor, a senior pastor, for 34, 34 years, yeah. And I've pastored many Simon Peters. And this is a man with a restlessness about himself. He is becoming untamed in his spirit. And so he wants to go into what you and I might describe as his comfort zone his area of expertise. He can only wait so long. There's a marked impatience about this man. And maybe that describes you. I'm going fishing. Can't wait here behind these closed doors anymore. They said to him, "Well, we'll go with you. Don't miss What comes next? They went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. God has, in his permissive will, allowed them to go into their expertise area, their comfort zone the setting where they are so acknowledged and rewarded for their skills and abilities. And that night, they caught nothing. Disappointed, weary. And now the question is, why? Why do we find men here who simply were not able to produce in their areas of supposed strength. Before he went into the presence of the Lord, Chakosin describes a scene. As I sat on the platform, waiting my turn at the pulpit, my mind began to drift back in time. The scholarships and honors earned. Cases argued and won. Great decisions made from lofty government offices. My life had been the perfect success story, the great American dream fulfilled. But all at once I realized that it was not my success God had used 
to enable me to help those in this prison or in hundreds of others just like it. My life of success was not what made this morning, this Easter morning, so glorious. All my achievements meant nothing in God's economy. No. The real legacy of my life was my greatest failure. That I was an ex-con. My greatest humiliation, being sent to prison was the beginning of God's greatest use of my life. He chose the one experience in which I could not glory for his glory. And now what Jesus is about to do is to take these people and put them in their zone of expertise where on any given day, on any given night, you would think that they would produce a sense of glory through achievement. And they come up empty. He chose the one experience in which I could not glory for his glory. Now begin to look over the days of your life. Both the successes and the failures. The highs and the lows. All come under the lordship of Jesus Christ both the fullness as well as the emptiness of life itself, shattered dreams, yet fulfilled experiences, find a connectedness under Jesus Christ's lordship. But at this moment, what Jesus does is he allows them through a blend of ultimate weariness and complete disappointment to come up empty There is simply no fish in those nets. And so it can be in the way in which God works with you and with me. He allows for you and me to reach a point where we have, through sustained effort, found that we cannot meet what it is that only God can meet. And we cannot fulfill in that infinite, eternal space of our souls what only the infinite, eternal, unchangeable God can, can pour into those souls, his grace. God has a way of dealing with people with empty nets. Is that you this morning? There's a purpose for those empty nets. They have to come to some form of self-awareness. Now what God is going to do at this point is pull the trigger on self-awareness. And when you are dealing with God, you have to deal with the sum totality of who God is, but also the sum totality of who we are in relationship to him. He's infinite, we're finite. He's eternal, we're temporal. He's unchangeable, we're changeable. He is holy, we are sinful. But once you reach that point of awareness of who God is and who you, I, are, where we can resonate in our souls and connect with these thoughts that night, they caught nothing, and you may be saying at this point, life just seems so unfulfilling. 
I have put so much out and got so little back. I can connect with these guys. Out on the waters. Here comes Jesus. Notice the timing. It was just as day was breaking in verse 4. Had it been earlier, they would have said, no, we want to keep trying. No, he waits for just the right moment of physical exhaustion. Self-awareness of emptiness. The sense of, I can't do it. Is that you? He waits on you and me. He waits on these disciples in their supposed zone of expertise when they are now anything but experts on this given night. And he stands on the shore. They recall the time when Jesus sat in the boat. This time, Jesus stands at the shore. And the disciples, you and I are told here, did not know that it was Jesus, like so many people in this world. So now, notice very carefully here. Unrecognized. Unaware, yet present. Like so many life experiences. Involved, but seemingly at a distance. And interestingly, he does not self-identify. He doesn't go, hey, it's me, Jesus. No, he does this sort of thing with empty people. He does this with the weariness of life. He educates us at our point of vulnerability. At this point, there is not the divine disclosure, but he maintains his divine composure. Jesus said to them in the form of question, children. Now, normally... You don't shout out to brawny fishermen, hey children. Hey kids. I mean, that's a put down. But they're experiencing now life at its fullness and their own lives and their emptiness. And there seems to be this collision course waiting to be explained. And what does Jesus do? He poses a question you'd prefer not to answer. Hey, uh, got any fish? You guys, you experts, you kings of the sea, you got any fish? What is Jesus doing to the person who... 
in their zone of expertise, in their comfort zone, finds Jesus posing serious questions to you, and you've got to admit, can't do it. You're weary. You're tired. And you've just been exposed to, I've come up empty. Maybe Carolyn Ahrens can help us here. A couple years ago, during an incredibly jubilant Easter service, she writes on her blog, our pastor said something that stopped me in my mental tracks. Quote, The world offers promises full of emptiness. But Easter offers emptiness full of promise. The world offers promises full of emptiness. But Easter offers emptiness full of promise. An empty cross. An empty tomb. Empty grave clothes. Are on a collision course. With empty nets. We've got a resurrection revelation on our hands here. In the form of a question. But what God requires of us is to get honest. How do we answer a God who asks such questions? Children, not men. Children, do you have any fish? They got an answer. And they answered him, No. And that is a powerful statement of self-awareness that a Chuck Colson could come to, that a Carolyn Ahrens could likewise blog about. And what you and I have got to be able to address within our own spheres of living, how do I handle both the fullness and emptiness aspects of life itself? when I've got an empty cross and an empty tomb and empty grave clothes on my hands to deal with as I try to figure out an empty life that I've been pursuing. You see, through Jesus Christ's resurrection, note with me first the limitations God reveals about us where he gets us to be honest with who we are. But when you reach that point of saying no, then the instructions, the guidance, the sovereign teachings appear, which point in the direction of this second aspect of resurrection revelation. The number two, through Jesus Christ's resurrection, note with me the evidence God offers to us. Resurrection evidence. And he said to them, 
cast the net on the right side of the boat. You nautical types know that this is the starboard. Now, for some sovereign reason, God in his will has had the disciples thus far fishing on one side of the boat. That's so typical of God's people. We're always fishing on the wrong side of the boat. Interestingly, you and I are told here in this verse 6, so they cast it. They are obeying the word. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. You're absolutely astounded at this point. That word from the shoreline is such that a simple redirection was necessary. A mid-course correction in life required. And now what they find is that all along they were fishing on the wrong side of the boat. And that might be the way you would describe your appearance here on this Easter Sunday morning. It was the 1988 Winter Olympics. And it featured blind skiers being trained for slalom skiing. Impossible, it seems. Paired with sighted skiers, the blind skiers were taught on the flats how to make right and left turns. When that was mastered, they were taken to the slalom slope where their sighted partner skied beside them, shouting, left, right, left, right. And as they obeyed the commands, they were able to negotiate the course and finish the, go across the finish line depending solely upon the word of another. It was either complete trust or catastrophe. And when you look very carefully at the evidence of Jesus Christ, It requires complete trust or catastrophe. In verse 7, that disciple whom Jesus loved, that's the apostle John, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. We noted, didn't we, on the onset that in the prior two revelations behind locked doors, there was a descriptive of Jesus the Lord coming to a climax when Thomas would cry out, My Lord and my God. Not merely our Lord and our God. He got personal. Have you with Jesus? And now with that whole idea of Lord God resonating in their mindset, we can grasp the significance then of what Jesus has done and the evidence that he is providing you and me. 
and you ponder the evidence and the wide-ranging aspects of evidence, the eyewitness accounts and the testimony of the various credible people. The faithfulness and the other utter transformation of the disciples as they, once behind closed doors, now would find themselves hitting the streets, running throughout Jerusalem, proclaiming, He is risen. Something's happened here. Where there are 500 people, according to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, who attest to the idea, He is risen. He is risen indeed. And you ponder the credibility of the witnesses and the efforts, the futile efforts of the opponents, who if only, if only they could have produced the body, they could have put to rest this entire notion that Jesus is risen, risen indeed. But there is fulfillment in the emptiness of the tomb. And there is fulfillment in the emptiness of that cross. And there is fulfillment for your heart if you come here this morning feeling incredibly empty. And you've thrown out your nets night after night and you've caught nothing. What does all this teach you? Paul would tell you and me that the resurrection validates the claims and the deity of Jesus Christ, according to Romans 1, verse 4. In Romans 4, verses 24 and 25, he would teach us that all who believe in Christ are justified from all sin. The believer knows that according to Romans 6, verse 4, the believer can then live a life pleasing to God. And as the Apostle John would point out to you and me from that upper room discourse, death is not, it's not the end of life. The cross is empty. The grave is empty. They came initially with their nets empty and now come back full. It's the Lord. John says it. Thomas had proclaimed it. C.S. Lewis pens it. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he's a poached egg or else the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend it to. And Thomas has said, my Lord, my God, John has a way to be the first when it comes to insight, and Peter tends to be the first when it comes to action. So now, 
Simon Peter hears that it's the Lord. He puts on his outer garment. He was stripped for work, threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away. And contrast that to the first experience Jesus and Peter had together when all of a sudden there's an incredible haul. That first go around in Luke chapter 5, where in verse 1 through 11, Jesus used the boat as a means, as a, as a lectern to be able to teach. That when an incredible haul of fish were brought in, Simon Peter saw it, fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. But this time around, he's not saying, Depart from me, what Peter is doing second go around, because now we're post-resurrection. He wants to get to Jesus. Because Jesus has gotten to Peter. Has Jesus gotten to you? It leads us then to this third aspect of resurrection revelation. Not only the limitations God reveals about us in that 1 through 5 section And secondly, the evidence God offers to us that we recited and expanded upon in verse 6 through 8. But thirdly, note this with me, the fellowship God provides for us. And in verse 9, they got out on land. And Jesus is one step ahead of everybody, particularly Peter, which is evidently not too hard to do. They saw a charcoal fire in place. A charcoal fire? And your mind goes back to John chapter 18 where the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And it was there that Peter denied his involvement with Jesus. Not once. Not twice. But three times. And here comes the revelation of resurrection. Not once. Not twice. But the third time. And there will come a point after breakfast with Jesus where Jesus will pose the question, Peter, do you love me? Not once, not twice, but three times next to that charcoal fire. The charcoal fire of which was the fire of denial becomes the fire of acceptance. Jesus is reestablishing fellowship. Do you have any unreconciled issues in your life at this moment like Peter did with Jesus? You've come to Jesus, and now you know there are still issues of the past that need to be resolved. But a resurrection revelation has made its way into your, into your zone of comfort and you experience incredible discomfort, and you're wondering now, how does Jesus relate to me? What does Jesus do? He says to them, bring some of the fish that you've caught. Shades of that moment when that little boy with the loaves of fish, loaves of bread and fish, were brought to Jesus, and Jesus multiplied and multiplied and multiplied, and then each disciple had to bring back a basket full one for each, evidence. And now, allowing them to experience hands-on evidence, Jesus says to them, not merely to Peter, bring some of the fish that you have just caught, 
Really, this is the fish that Jesus has caught for them. He knows which side of the boat to fish on. So Simon Peter went aboard, and he's a very strong man, hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn, in contrast to the Luke 5, verse 1 through 11 passage, where with that haul, the net was torn. And they're saying, just like Jesus. Who are you? Would be the question. But this time around, no one dares ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Physicists in this weekend's bloggings of various aspects of Easter reminds us of quantum theories for those that have a mathematical physics background. Light, waves, and particles. Not waves to the exclusion of particles. Not particles to the exclusion of waves. Jesus. Humanity and divinity. Not humanity to the exclusion of divinity. Not divinity to the exclusion of humanity. Two natures in one person describes the light of the world. And now here we find it. Who are you? And they knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And he has a way of serving. He did that in that upper room when he washed their feet. He does that now as he breaks bread and gives to them. And you and I are told that this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples. After he was raised from the dead. And they're pondering that hall at the shoreline. And they're picturing, as Wiley would put it, yourself and raiment white, cleansed by the blood of the lifeless night. Never to mourn the prince who is downed, for he is not lost, it is you who are found. Have you put your faith and trust in the one who is Lord of the hall? Let's pray. So, Father, we're astounded, struck by our limitations, overwhelmed by your evidence, enriched by your fellowship. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. He's offering breakfast by the sea. He's offering nourishment for our souls. He takes the emptiness of our spirit and he fills us with the grace of salvation. And for this we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.